Hello and welcome to episode number 74 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, January 11th, 2010. We will be continuing the theme of farms in schools and school gardens today on the Agro Innovations Podcast. And before I get into the interview uh, that will be featured on today's show, I want to say that the sound quality is not the highest sound quality that I could have hoped to achieve. Uh, for some reason, we had some fuzz on the line. But that said, I think that overall the interview is worthwhile. Uh, there are definitely There's definitely a lot of information in there that can help people to implement something similar in their communities. So bear with the sound quality and you will, I'm sure, learn something and take something valuable away from the interview. So, without any further commentary on my part, here's my interview with Debbie Hillman. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Debbie Hillman, who is the coordinator of the Illinois Local and Organic Food and Farm Task Force and is the co-chair of the Evanston Food Policy Council. Debbie Hillman, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Hi, Frank. Well, I've been thinking a lot lately and pushing hard for this concept of putting gardens and farms in our schools, and this is an issue that we're dealing with here on the Agro Innovations Podcast in a series of, of interviews and conversations. The story of Evanston really caught my attention because from what I've read, it seems like the students took the initiative to turn an empty lot into a school garden. Tell me the story of where this happened and what exactly took place. Well, I, I wouldn't exactly say that the students took the initiative, um, but, I, but I'll tell you the story. Um, Evanston High School is a large high school. I, I think there's more than 3,000 students. And, you know, and when I was growing up in the baby boom generation, there were 5,000 students. Uh, it's a large campus, 65 acres, and the high school actually owns other property around around the high school, including one uh, small residential lot right across the street from the main entrance. Um, people don't know it's owned by the high school, and so when high school students who choose to smoke look, look around for a place to smoke, they would traditionally go over there. Uh, and it was called the log. It's still called the log, uh, presumably because at one time there was a log on which people sat. Uh, it, do it doesn't exist anymore, but everybody knows it as the log, and it has traditionally for at least 20 or 30 years been, been the place where students, you know, during lunchtime or after school go and smoke. But because it is high school property, the high school is required by law to enforce the no smoking policy. And so it's basically been a huge headache for the high school administration. Um, so, and it also happens to be on a somewhat busy street in Evanston, which is a suburb right outside Chicago, the home of Northwestern University. Um, 75,000 people, and, and it's a pretty urban suburb. Uh, so there's quite a bit of traffic uh, uh, along that, going, going past where the students would smoke. 
Um, so a year ago, um, uh, it, uh, there was there came to the attention of the administrators that there was a lot of activity going around in the community on local foods, you know, doing, doing community gardens, school gardens, uh, trying to do job training programs, um, uh, adding more farmers markets in our community. Uh, and in fact, um, there was a new farmers market that went in um, right at the corner of the high school property on a parking lot also owned by the high school. And this corner is in the African-American community. Uh, and the alderman there said she wanted a farmer's market in her neighborhood. And so the Evanston Food Policy Council helped her to put that in there. And it became actually a very um, a big community effort. There, a lot of people got involved in, in putting a business plan and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, since it was on another piece of high school property, the high school just became conscious of local foods. And and so basically he said to the people at the farmer's market and to the Evanston Food Policy Council, we have this other property called the log where the students smoke. And if you could figure out to do something in terms of producing food, you can use it for <laughs> for something. And so uh, from, the, from the very beginning, uh, everybody was on board to make it happen. Um, it's about a, an eighth of an acre. Uh, there really was nothing there, a few trees. And um, the, uh, since, since August of 2008, we have been putting the plan together, and we actually started implementing it um, or late this summer where we had to first put a water line in, then we put raised beds and wood chips, um, and it now is... Uh, combination community garden outdoor classroom. Um, so, uh, you know, there's many other pieces to it, but uh, uh, you probably have other questions or things you want me to address, so uh, I'll let you get a word in edgewise here. Well, how did the students react to this initiative, and, um, you know, how have, they, how have they taken ownership of it? Well, um, it's it's been it's been mixed uh, actually. Um, the, the students who smoke um, are have been kind of bemused and they they haven't had a problem with it, but, but it actually hasn't been in existence for very long. So it remains to be seen, you know, really what happens through the next year or so. Um, but the the entire school is is very excited about this entire project. It's called the Edible Acre pilot project because the long-term plan is actually to, to create a working farm uh, on an acre of high school land. And so this has become simply a pilot project for uh, the vocational training department, which already has a horticulture and a culinary program. So those programs now can expand, uh, you know, to actually do more hands-on uh, uh, growing and, and learning. Uh, on this site, the the geometry teacher has taken a class out to measure the volume of soil in the raised beds and angle of the sun in terms of uh, what's needed for uh, light and energy for plants. Uh, the art teacher wants to create a sculpture to go into the garden. 
Um, so, and, and we haven't even started touching the environmental sciences and, and other biology classes. Uh, and so uh, the whole school is very excited. Um, from the student perspective, uh, some of the student groups, the, the green team, the, the students that are, have identified that they are concerned about environmental issues and sustainability uh, are very supportive of this. Um, and we, we, we haven't quite scratched the surface in terms of what kind of programming can actually take place. That's going to be the next step uh, this winter to actually sit down and say what are the you know, what are the different ways that this this place can be used? Now, tell us a little bit about the school garden in terms of what's grown there. Um, who exactly is responsible for taking care of it and tilling the soil and all of that? Um, and what is done with the produce when it's harvested? Well, um, because because this lot is a residential lot and not on the main campus. Um, it was decided very early on, especially in conjunction with the aldermen, that um, the community should be involved. So there are 26 raised beds, and a certain number of them will be set aside um, for neighbors in the neighborhood. And uh, that, that selection will take place this winter also, where we'll probably have some sort of uh, meeting to let the neighbors know that these plots are available and and people can sign up and um, uh, so I imagine that you know six or seven of these beds will be for neighbors. Um, the the students um, have already planted uh, some greens. Um, they planted bulbs, daffodils. Uh, so they will obviously come up in the spring. But uh, I think. The, the food will be, it'll be a wide diversity of, of vegetables, especially. Uh, we'll have herb spirals, uh, fruit. We're going to plant some uh, raspberries and blackberries along the edges of the garden. Uh, and I think primarily the food will go, uh, will be used in the culinary program. Um, the the long-term hope for the larger project, the Edible Acre, is that the working farm would actually sell food directly to the high school cafeteria. Um, so, uh, but I'm, I'm not quite sure uh, whether this small pilot project will have uh, really enough food to, to, make, uh, to make it workable for the high school right, right yet. Um, well, one of the questions that um, comes to my mind, and I, and I just recently did... Um, an interview with the folks at uh, Felder School Farm. Uh, they're in Little Rock, Arkansas, and one of the questions I asked um, the gentleman who I interviewed from Felder School Farm was how to deal with the um, sometimes diametrically opposed seasonality of education and farming in that uh, usually during the principal growing season, uh, kids are not in school. H how is that being addressed uh, in this project? And yeah, isn't and isn't that crazy too? Well, um, to get back to a part of your question before, um, the Evanston Food Policy Council has a nonprofit implementation arm. It's called the Talking Farm, the farm with something to say, 
and uh, we provide technical assistance uh, to any growing project uh, in the area. And so we have been the, the primary partner uh, on this project. We, we, we designed uh, the Edible Acre pilot project, and we've installed it. When we've, uh, and we will provide the management uh, at least through the first couple of years. So the management, of course, includes uh, summertime. Uh, the high school does have a lot of classes. It, uh, as I said, it's a very big high school and, and really is used year-round. But um, there is also a summer youth employment programs. Uh, so uh, we are already in conversation with them to uh, certainly have them maintain or even you know, possibly grow, uh, grow food themselves uh, in the beds. Um, uh, you know, and and obviously that's another reason why we engage the community because uh, just by having a few neighbors who come come to the garden regularly, then you you have some uh, you know some presence which would eliminate vandalism or just uh, you know just adds to the com- communality of the of the experience. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, the community. How has the community reacted to this? Um, you may be familiar with the work of James Howard Kunstler, uh, right. and he is a a very scathing critic of suburbia and how it has really destroyed our communities, uh, the way that suburbia is laid out and the way that it's designed and the way that people inhabit the landscape. Now, this initiative that you are involved in obviously um, has some aspects of within, within the project itself that I think address effectively some of the criticisms that uh, Kunstler has against suburbia. Now, naturally, you are not completely redesigning the suburban landscape. At this point, that's probably an impossible feat, but you are adding an element to it that creates and builds community. Um, what are your thoughts on that, and how has the community responded to, to this element that you've added? Well, I and I, um, you know, I get uh, radio and podcasts are certainly uh, pictures of the mind, and so I need to sort of um, set it straight that although Evanston is technically a suburb, it is right outside the city limits of Chicago. It is a very urban suburb. Um, so it does not have the, the subdivisions. Uh, it is an old community. It's been around since 1850s. Many of the houses are more than 100 years old. So this, these are these are not. This is not the cul-de-sacs and the tract housing that many people think of when they think of uh, houses uh, suburbs. Um, this really is an urban area. And in fact, this particular residential lot that I wear the Edible Acre Pilot Project is simply, uh, I think, 50 feet wide, something 50 by 150 or something like that. Um, so it's a, and, and down, down the whole block, there are the same narrow lots with small houses on them. Uh, so it really is an, uh, an urban uh, area more than that typical, you know, open space, sprawling, suburban um we we have a lot of public transportation uh, people walk um so so it is uh, uh, we're we're not fighting that uh that typical suburban aesthetic and in fact the the larger community is ex- is also extremely excited about this project 
Uh, we have had a number of volunteers. Um, we're going to do fundraising, and we think we're going to be extremely successful because the the um, community supports the schools, and they certainly support the high school in in all of the different programs that they try. And uh, the community is very proud of Evanston High School in um, in the wide range of programs and experimentation that they do. So, uh, so it's not quite the same thing that Kunstler was talking about. What lessons do you think people who are listening to this can take away from this project so that this can be replicated elsewhere? Uh, well, it's always, it's always great to get a lot of buy-in on anything, and certainly to, uh, to talk to the powers that be. I mean, we always need to talk to the aldermen or whatever legislators are, are nearby and, and consider it part of, you know, that you're in their territory. Um, certainly, if the high school hadn't wanted to do this, it, this would not have happened. Uh, but because the high school was so supportive of it, um, they uh, they have just provided the the energy and the money and the ideas. Uh, so uh, it, it it's and it, so I guess I mean the main um, lesson is is the community building aspect that if um, people want to do good things in their in their hometowns wherever that is whether it's in an inner city neighborhood or or a, a true sprawling suburb or even in a rural town people want to do good concrete projects and um, and and will come and put you know give their sweat and their money and their uh, you know we we have tapped into some of the local foundations and private donations and um, and it's it's a these kinds of visible projects uh, I think are, uh, are are able to gather a, a lot of a lot of community energy around it and and it enables a multiplicity of activities to take place hopefully. Well, I am I I am strongly of the notion that this needs to happen in as many schools as possible in as short a uh, time as possible. As you were saying, you all are just getting started with this, and you've really just scratched the surface in terms of the educational possibilities uh, associated with the project. And also, I think what, what, you're, what projects like this are starting to touch on is really an entirely new paradigm for education. And, you know, people who are in the thick of it and... and uh, dealing with the day-to-day -day logistics of trying to get something like this started may not see it that way, but I think that uh, this is really quite a different way to approach education, quite a different, uh, you know, quite a, a turnaround from what education traditionally has been. Um, and it incorporates all these different elements from, as you said, science to mathematics and art, um, uh, business as... Uh, the folks at Felder School Farm have uh, pointed out. So I'm wondering, uh, considering all of the bureaucratic and behavioral obstacles to putting farms in our schools, what do you think this, the prospects for this happening on a large scale in a short time frame really are? Well, I see it already happening everywhere, and, and I do mean, well, I mean, it's, it's not that I am a world traveler or anything, 
but uh, I am coordinator of a state task force in Illinois, so uh, I have been all over the state. I have been all over the Chicago area, and these kinds of uh, urban farms, community gardens, school gardens, market gardens, whatever you call them, they are, they are springing up absolutely everywhere um, for the multiplicity of reasons that you mentioned. I mean, uh, I know you're focusing on school gardens, and, uh, and school gardens are happening everywhere because people are finally, re- educators are finally realizing that, um, that students, that people, people learn through life through they we don't we don't learn through sitting in a room or uh, uh, you know eight six eight hours a day uh, out of books we learn first through our senses through our hands through our body through our uh, uh, our, our trying trying to manipulate things in the physical world learning things in the physical world and so um, uh, I, I, I am seeing that the educational community themselves are there, are are advocating for these kinds of things, um, uh, getting students outside, uh, getting them in touch with real things, uh, and then then the the other kinds of learning, the reading, writing, and arithmetic, becomes more meaningful when it's attached to. Uh, basic human needs um, and and the actual environment in which we live. So um, uh, I think I think we do need to grow this movement. Um, uh, here in Evanston, uh, we have had one of the elementary schools has had an edible garden for about six or seven years, and this year uh, six or seven other schools had edible gardens. And now um, over the winter, we are putting together. Um, a group to try and connect the curriculum that's in the elementary schools with what's going to happen in the high school uh, at the Edible Acre. So we're just in the baby steps of this, but but that is what needs to happen. Um, uh, so um, I, I I'm very excited about what's happening, really really everywhere, and uh, and I think we just need to uh, support each other and and ask. Ask, ask for the policy support and the monetary support uh, in our in our democratic uh, government. Yes, well, uh, I, I'm certainly an advocate of of doing that by all means, and I think my feeling is that the best chance we have of doing that is at the local level. Uh, it's a place where we can still meet our uh, whether they be state uh, senators or state representatives or city councilmen, or our mayors, um, all of those people are still, you know, somewhat accessible to us. Where our congressmen and our senators uh, at the federal level, uh, you know, they're just in a whole other universe. So uh, what, let me ask you, what practical tips do you have for people uh, to do exactly what you're saying in terms of growing this movement, uh, connecting it to other local initiatives, uh, getting the support that it needs. Um, how do you recommend people approach this and be effective at it? Uh, I think the first thing really to do, if, if, if you're one person and you're listening to this and you say, you know, you're thinking, I've been wanting to do this for a number of years, or wow, that's a great idea. 
where do I start? The, the place to start is talking to some other colleagues. If, if you're talking about schools, talk to other parents. Uh, get a core group together who really want this and who want to do it. And then you need to make sure that you are all in agreement on the basic, the basic principles of the project because you, you will find that the project means different things to different people. Uh, and, and the idea is to at least agree on the basics and the principles and, and um, you know, may, maybe, uh, maybe a particular edible garden is not going to be growing heirloom tomatoes, you know, and that may be something that's some specialty of some one of the parents, but the other people say, no, they'd rather grow, you know, uh, more diversity or something. I, I'm, I'm just saying um, I think people be, should be prepared not to have their own particular vision fully fleshed out in the public arena. This is a collaborative process, uh, and the more we work together, the better the project will be anyways, and the more sustainable it will be because it does serve multiple uses and multiple needs. So I, I just I say start small, you know, get a core group together, uh, put it in place, uh, talk reasonably with each other and, and with the people who have to make the decisions. You know, the school people, the school has to allow the garden, um, and maybe it's not even a question of allowing. Maybe the school wants it as much as our high school did. So, uh, and I, I, I hope that's the case because it's much easier that way. Um, but the the thing is to look for allies and don't don't waste your time trying to convince people if they're just not interested. Uh, I would say uh, follow the energy, follow the positive energy. So wherever something positive is leading toward the garden, follow that, and uh, and it and it will grow. Uh, it will grow into the thing that you imagined, but it will take time. Yeah, when I hear you talk about that, it it reminds me. I was a Peace Corps volunteer for three years. Oh, really? Um, and everything you're saying reminds me of my Peace Corps service, you know, finding allies and getting out there, getting in the community, meeting people, uh, you know, talking to different people. And and one of the things that struck me when I got back was all these, you know, skills that we had to acquire as Peace Corps volunteers to be effective uh, volunteers and effective community organizers. Uh, they just became completely... Uh, dormant in in the United States context in a way uh, something that you know Peace Corps doesn't really talk about all that much or uh, you know that maybe not even even recognized as a valuable skill in our society I, I wrote an article for the Peace Corps about that point about uh, my service overseas and then coming back and seeing this sort of gap between the one and the other um, and ironically enough, the Peace Corps published only the part of my article that had to do with my service overseas and completely eliminated the part that was a little bit of a critique of what was actually happening. And this was several years ago that I wrote this in the United States at the time. Um, so it's, it's just kind of a, an interesting observation, I think. But I think that uh, pe people who have been involved in things like Peace Corps or AmeriCorps uh, they can be useful resources in in this uh, in this struggle as well. 
Oh, absolutely. And I, I wonder, is there kind of an alternative Peace Corps group that where you can meet outside the official Peace Corps? Um, you know, you should start your own uh, website or something, because I think I think those peace, all of all the Peace Corps volunteers, you're absolutely right. They have these skills that that are are, are really needed and they, they are uh, so. Oh, that that's really very interesting. Um, I mean, you've given me some ideas of places to tap into um, people on a larger effort because, I mean, here in Illinois, we are trying to regrow our local food economy. Illinois is a farm state, but we only grow corn and soybeans. We, we could not survive um, if we didn't have California and China. And uh, that's not sustainable. So we are trying to, you know, change that, and we need to do it quickly. So uh, thank you very much for the suggestion. I'm, I'm going to see if I can tap into our local Peace Corps volunteers and, uh, you know, and and see what they can do in terms of uh, training new farmers or um, or helping out in the school gardens. Uh, all of that. That's, that's a great idea. Thank you. Well, there's a returned Peace Corps uh, volunteers. It's actually uh, sponsored by the Peace Corps. There's a returned Peace Corps volunteer. If you type in returned Peace Corps volunteers on Google, I'm sure that'll be the first thing to come up. Oh, uh, and and I'll tell you, we're everywhere. <laughs> there's been yeah. uh, there's been several. Uh, I believe it's over a hundred thousand, or I, I don't oh, know the that. exact number, but there's a lot of returned Peace Corps volunteers in this country, and uh, they're everywhere. So I guarantee you that uh, there are some in your community, uh, and they are from all different generations, uh, from younger generations, people who've just gotten back, uh, to people who served in the 60s. Um, And they are definitely out there, and they are usually organized. There's also a program called the Worldwide Schools Program. That is probably one of the most underutilized uh, programs that the Peace Corps has, and uh, it allows you to... Uh, bring Peace Corps volunteers, return Peace Corps volunteers to schools to share their experiences. Um, and it also allows uh, students in schools to communicate with volunteers who are in the field. So uh, there are definitely resources out there to be uh, taken advantage of. So so I definitely encourage oh, that. That's fabulous. Those are, uh, <laughs> now, I, now I know what I'm going to do for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, great. And Debbie Hillman, um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the great work that you're doing. Uh, thank you for sharing your experiences. And uh, I, and I'm sure all the listeners of the Agro Innovations Podcast, wish you great success. And we hope that uh, the success that you've had in the past will continue to multiply exponentially into the future. And thanks what you're, for doing what you're doing, um, you know, airing, airing all of our stories to, to everybody else out there. I, I really appreciate you contacting me. Thanks. Well, you're welcome. That concludes my interview with Debbie Hillman, who has told us all about this fascinating and great effort to put a small garden into a school in Illinois. And it seems, as Debbie said, that this is an effort that is just getting underway. And along those lines, I actually just this past Friday met someone here in Albuquerque who was with the uh, Albuquerque Public Schools, and she is heading up the initiative to put gardens into schools. So it was quite a serendipitous meeting, and it was also encouraging to see that uh, at least some people 
are on top of this in my local community. And along those lines, if you are in New Mexico, and especially if you're in Albuquerque, then please get in touch with me. You have many ways to do so. I am curious about the local listenership that we have. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who all listens to the Agro Innovations podcast. I do believe that some people do listen here locally, at least in the New Mexico area, specifically Santa Fe and Albuquerque, which are very close to one another. And I'd like to know who, who's out there and who's listening. Uh, some people stop by from time to time and have a listen, and perhaps some people in the area are more regular listeners. I definitely would like to have the opportunity to cover some more local stories as our local media, other than our uh, local public radio station, which does cover these issues from time to time. But in general, our local media isn't doing all that great a job of covering the success stories and projects and opportunities that are going on out there in the field of sustainable agriculture. I think that's a great place for blogs and podcasts and the like to step in and fill that gap. So if anybody has a project that they're involved in here locally, or they know of a project here locally that they would like to see featured on the Agro Innovations podcast, then please, by all means, get a hold of me, and I will do my best to contact that person or to contact you and set up an interview. I have had some local themes on in the past, and uh, of course I plan to continue to have those on, but it would certainly be nice to have the Agro-Innovations podcast act as a resource and an information clearinghouse for people who are uh, looking to connect up with one another here in our local Albuquerque, Santa Fe area. So if you are uh, interested in seeing that happen and, and would like to uh, help grow that resource, then please, please get in touch with me. Uh, you can click on the contact link on our webpage, agroinnovations.com. Uh, of course, you can give me a call. There's a phone number on that link. You can send me an email uh, via uh, the email form that is on that page, or you can email podcast at agroinnovations.com. The Agroinnovations podcast is also on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. And uh, Facebook as well, you can, uh, and, and all the Facebook, I don't have a separate fan page set up for the podcast. Uh, most of the stuff that deals with the podcast, I just uh, push out directly through my Facebook page, which is Frank Aragona. And there is a little uh, badge for that on the agroinnovations.com slash podcast page. The Agro Innovations Podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. And there's also a badge for that as well on the agroinnovations.com slash podcast website. You can click through and that will take you to uh, creativecommons.org so you can learn more about what exactly that means and what you are licensed to do with the content from this podcast. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos.